Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 241. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Happy 4th of July, everyone. Yes, happy Independence Day. How better to celebrate the holiday than with a conversation about Captain America? I can't believe it took 241 episodes to get here. However, July 4th rarely falls on a Tuesday when we release our episodes, so we figured when better than the present, the worlds are finally colliding. Yes, it is about time we got around to discussing the star-spangled man with the plan. However, we did have a good reason for holding off, which was this came out on the cusp of the Marvel acquisition by Disney. Um, and since we've already done Thor, which was also produced technically before the acquisition, we were like, well, we're, we're not going to ignore the cap in this case. But at least this film came out post-acquisition. This was after Thor. Right. So that that's why we kind of grandfathered it in. But it's still, I mean, Disney's still doing this. Like, we went and saw, you know, uh, the new Indiana Jones film opening weekend, and you get the Disney logo and the Paramount logo. Like, they're still working with, as they've acquired these IPs, and as they acquire more, they, they still owe films to other studios who have binding agreements with something like a Lucasfilm, right, before Disney bought them. So I don't think it's the last time that you're going to see this, but I think as time goes on, it'll be less and less of it and more films that'll fall under the Disney banner. But seeing as Disney owned it, we kind of grandfathered it in. Yes, this this one gets a pass. For sure. And we're certainly not going to discuss the sequels without talking about the first one. Right. I mean, that's why, unfortunately, you're never going to hear us do the Iron Man series on here. Because that film came out way before Disney acquired Marvel. So there's just no good way to do it. And we really want to stick to our guns with this being a Disney podcast. So, was this film worth the wait? How much of... That masterful Avengers series was set up 11 years ago. 12 years ago, actually, I believe. That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles such as sketchbook and concert tees. And I cannot recommend enough that you go check out the Marvel selection because she has so many cute Captain America quotes like I could do this all day and until the end of the line it's a really cute Captain America Bucky mashup so I know there's a lot of Bucky stands out there that would love these selections listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code Monoreal at checkout visit fiercefoxdesignco.com to check out all of the collections and you don't get a lot of Bucky merch right like most I'm people saying, yeah. they really lean into Captain America very little uh, about Bucky all right, so let's go. We're going to do a linear review today because Marvel. In the Arctic, scientists uncover an old warplane underneath the ice. In the ship holds the frozen body of Captain America. 
We now flash back to Norway in 1942. Nazi Johann Schmidt arrives with his men and open a tomb revealing a phony version of the Tesseract, which he then finds moments later. And they steal it for its powers. All right, I don't want to jump too far ahead because then just way too much is going on. But what I like here, and I have always liked, is that the opening in regards to finding the actual plane, it's very quick, but it's well done. You see the shield in the ice. They, they just go for it. You don't waste time with a lot of backstory. Here. They get you in, get you out. But I love that it starts in present day. And then we get to go back through the Cap's journey to bring us up to speed. Especially because when you factor in, and we're going to talk about it obviously at the end, what is the best post credit scene of all time, that reveal would not hit so hard if you didn't, have this set up from the very beginning. Correct. Um, I also like that they take us to Norway, even though this set feels like Hogwarts in every way possible from the design to the actor that plays Filch. Like I, I really feel like they jumped over to the Warner brothers lot and we're just like, you, can you go stand over by that staircase? We're going to knock this scene out real quick. But I think this is important because now you can see how they are connecting the dots to Thor, which as I mentioned earlier, was the last Marvel film to come out prior to this one. Um, so you not only start developing Schmidt's character and see that he's got a God complex and that's why he's after the Tesseract, he mentions Odin by name that this was part of Odin's treasure. Um, so you establish his motivation and you're also starting to see the breadcrumb trail forming because at the time we knew that they were building to the Avengers movie. But when you think back to 11, 12 years ago, unless you knew Marvel, unless you really, really knew the comics, you had no idea what this was going to grow into. So I love that they were starting to weave these films together from the jump. Yeah, he refers to it as the jewel of Odin's treasure room. It does an incredible job of setting up a lot of you know, what what we are going to know as the Infinity Saga. And I think that what they did really well here was that I think for the most part, you know, comic books for a long time were very niche. I think to a lesser extent they still are, but I think it's to a lesser extent because they did such a good job making this approachable and digestible for people that had no idea that any of this was happening. I agree. The fact that you could watch these films without having turned one page of a comic book and yet you feel completely caught up is a uh, testament to the screenwriting, the directing, the acting, and very much the road that they paved. So much of that being done in this movie. And you talked about Schmidt just now, played by uh, Hugo Weaver. And he, from the moment he comes on the screen is so captivating because it's insane to think that somewhere inside the Nazi party, there was someone even more unhinged than Adolf Hitler. And the fact that that's the exact message that they convey from the second he comes on screen is absolutely a credit to him as an actor. Absolutely, because 
eventually, and we're going to get to this scene later, he does say, I don't want to be in Hitler's shadow anymore. So you really have to convey pure evil from the jump to make a statement like that. And, Correct. And he does it. So moving forward, in New York, a scrawny Steve Rogers is denied entry into the army despite his desire to fight against the Nazis. Later that day, Steve is being beat up after an altercation at a movie theater until his best friend Bucky Barnes comes to his aid. There, Bucky sees that Steve has tried and failed again to enlist in the army and tells Steve that he is shipping out to England in the morning. So... There's a lot that happens very quickly here. The first being that they do an outstanding job of showing us that Steve Rogers is obviously the scrawniest guy in the room, that he's got a multitude of health issues, and that despite all of that, despite the fact that he could face jail time for lying on his enlistment forms, that he continues to try because all he wants to do is fight for freedom. I think it also gets completely glossed over that Steve not only wants to honor his country, but his parents as well, because it's such a quick throwaway line that they were also in the 107th division and they both were killed in action. Um, that was something that I, I hadn't even realized because the character sometimes the cap has a big old chip on his shoulder and it's very much portrayed as he's always got something to prove. Stop picking on the little guy. It almost comes off like a Napoleonic complex as well. It should, but I love that we get a deeper why and it has to do with his parents. Um, because I think that this movie theater scene, it's not only such a great snapshot of the era, but it's also such a microcosm of what Steve deals with. Um, you know, you've got the heckler in the theater. Come on, let's play the movie. And I love that they do include this because that is the mentality of some of the public that, you know, we just want to go out and enjoy a movie. We don't want to be reminded of the war. But at the same time, you sort of can't carry on with your everyday life while there is this major issue going on. You don't right. want to bury your head in the sand. So I love that they include both points of view here. And of course, Steve, it's very much in his character is he's trying to silence the heckler and he is on the side of let's not forget about what's going on. Let's never lose sight of what's going on. And, you know, that's compounded with he's just been told he can't enlist and having thrown that in his face. Um, so I really love this setup. I really love it as character development for Steve. And, you know, of course, we're going to get that great line in the alleyway while they're fighting of I could do this all day, which becomes his entire character. Yeah, so you get the first iteration of I Could Do This All Day. I think that it's noteworthy that there are times... Now, that line has been parodied a thousand times. And you're right. He comes off as having a chip on his shoulder. And I think people forget why. Because this film not only came out so long ago, but because, 
as much as I love the Infinity Saga, and I love Marvel as a whole, there is something to be said with the oversaturation that is Marvel. And I think that it you have so forgotten the backstory of so many of your main characters. Yes. People that have had this Infinity Saga built on their back. A lot of people forget where Tony Stark came from. A lot of people forget where Captain America came from and what their motivations were. So I think that it's important sometimes, instead of the sequels, I think it's important for people to go back and revisit these films so that they understand who these characters are, where they came from, and why. And I think that it is very important that we got introduced to Chris Evans in this form. Because people know Chris Evans is America's ass. But people forget that that's not what this character started as. Yes. And I think that we gloss over just how good that CGI was at the time that they made the film and as good as it is today. I think it holds now, but I'm not going to lie. The first couple of times I saw this, I kind of thought he looked a little bit like a bobblehead because what I wasn't sure about was if they had used another actor and then superimposed Chris Evans' face onto him. That's not the case at all. They let Chris film all of his scenes, all bulked up because he had to put on muscle mass for the role, uh, and then they just shrunk him down in posts, not only like you know, deflated his muscles, but they made him shorter. Um, obviously a, a lot more bony and, and just made him weak looking. And I, I thought at first that they weren't doing enough with his head because it looked too large on that little body, but I don't know what else they could have really done without losing too much more of the facial structure. So I, I think this was as good as it's going to get. And compared to some of the CGI that's passable now, I think it's great. Well, because CGI is not passable now, it's just cheap and studios don't care. Right. That's really what it boils down to. At this point, they played with his skin tones. His eyes are a little bit more sunken. Even his hairline, like his hair doesn't look as polished, as full, as thick. Like, they really did go above and beyond to make him look like somebody that could not possibly be Captain America. Because when you look at him next to Sebastian Stan, who plays Bucky, Sebastian Stan looks more like he could be Captain America than the character that actually is built to be Captain America. Well, it's not just about believing that or, or not believing that he could ever be Captain America one day, we have to believe that he can't even go and fight. We have to see him get knocked down and knocked down. And, you know, we do. We see him getting beat up. We learn that this is like a normal occurrence for him because Bucky comes to his rescue. And it is established that this is not Bucky's first time doing this for him. Uh, I love the way that Bucky is introduced. And I love this thread that develops of these two being there for each other until the end of the line. Yeah, I think that it's a great intro to Bucky, and I, I'm i glad that, obviously, the Winter Soldier plays out the way that it does, because when we saw the movie for the first time, having no context for what the future was going to be, I went, oh, here's the best friend that gets killed. You know, like, you, you kind of just know that it's going to happen because they build the relationship to be as tight as they are. 
so I'm glad that that sort of gets turned on its head as the series plays on. That and Sebastian Stan's performance, it's impossible for the audience to not fall in love with him. So you totally feel that loss. Yeah, I love that um, you know that he's trying his best to do everything that he can to protect his best friend, not just from the bully in the alley, but he calls him out on, like, why do you keep doing this? Like, why do you keep lying on the enlistment form? Like, you're going to be safer here than you are over there. He's doing everything in his power to just prevent him from going over. It's a great introduction, and I think Sebastian Stan is a fantastic Bucky Barnes. Agreed. So later that night, they attend an expo for the future technologies and bicker about whether or not Steve should continue to enlist because there is an enlistment site at the fair. Dr. Abraham Erskine overhears the conversation and invites Steve to join as a part of the Strategic Scientific Reserve. Um, I really love this expo. It's incredible. The only thing that I don't care for is the fact that they're obviously portraying this as being the New York World's Fair. Right. Which doesn't come until the 1960s. We see it then repurposed as Stark Expo later on. I like the fact that they used that iconic landmark. But the fact that you're, I mean, you're, you're playing with a period piece. Obviously, Hydra's not real. But we're willing to suspend our belief to an extent. I think because you are making a period piece, I think that it's a little bit of a stretch that you're trying to use something as iconic as the New York World's Fair site 20 years prior to the existence of that landmark. I hear you. And for the most part, I do agree because... I think that that is one of the things that makes this film so unique is that it is so rooted in history and what they were allowed to manipulate for it. Um, but in this case, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief because obviously Steve is from Brooklyn. We, we hear it, you know, I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. Right. Uh, so you have to keep it local and it's totally passable that they're going to go from Brooklyn to Queens. It's actually really interesting that you bring it up like that because I was thinking story-wise how great this is because now you're starting to unpack this friendship a little bit more and Bucky is talking about how Steve doesn't always have the best luck with the ladies because of his size and he goes out of his way to set up this double date uh, on his last night in town before he ships out. So they could have done this anywhere. They could have just said, hey, let's go grab a drink and had this set at a bar. But I love that they went big with it. And I love that we get to see this event play out that we've only heard about before in Iron Man. Now we get to meet Tony's father in his heyday. So I think it's a brilliant choice, and because of all of those elements coming together, I'm fine with this sort of trying to play as the World's Fair, but not really. I wish that we could get the Stark Expo 
as an Avengers campus here. Like, I, I will forever say that Wakanda at Animal Kingdom just makes so much sense. It's so unique. And I think that all of this is sort of a moot point because I'm not sure that we're really ever going to get an Avengers campus here. But it makes me wish that we either had it at Epcot or, in retrospect, instead of putting in Toy Story Land, I, yep. which you don't really I need, knew you were going to say that. You already had the New York backdrop yep. at Hollywood Studios. If you could have just built a Stark Expo there, it would have been phenomenal. And you could have still done Galaxy's Edge. You could have done so many things with New York because you could have had on one side the Stark Expo and on the other Stark Tower because the Avengers lar largely took place in Manhattan. You could have had Doctor Strange too. You could have done so much with what you already had had they kept New York. Correct. Um, and we Instead, get we got alien swirling saucers. Yes. Um, Dominic Cooper plays Howard Stark, and you see him with the floating car that doesn't necessarily work, and he says, I said it would be a few years, right? Like, he does a great job pulling off Tony's father, and you can see the clear line between him and Tony. He's slightly more humble, but you can see where they're very much of the same bloodline. I feel like there's also this element of car salesman that he's trying to put it over on these people until he can believe his own hype. Yeah. It, it's almost like you almost get the feeling like he's a magician trying to get these people to believe him, but he knows that he's smart enough to eventually pull this off. Yeah. I, I love it. I love the whole thing. And we also get um, introduced very, very early the thread about dancing, which becomes a metaphor in, uh, Steve and Peggy's relationship. Correct. We also get introduced to Stanley Tucci as Dr. Erskine. Stanley Tucci is good in everything except Beauty and the Beast. Uh, so that carries over here. Stanley Tucci is incredible as Erskine. I love the relationship that he forms with Steve immediately. I love that he sees in Steve what almost nobody else sees in Steve. And the performance is just incredible. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I love that for him, it's all about Steve's character and his fight from the beginning and that he's not trying to dupe him. It's not, here's some weak kid that I can sell this idea to. He believes in him from the jump. Right, because that line of, I don't like bullies. Like, this whole thing, in theory, should kind of get old by now. But because they they nip it in the bud just early enough it doesn't grow old it doesn't seem cliched and it's not something that you know you roll your eyes and go ugh here's another cheesy line like they cut it just before it gets to that point speaking of lines one thing that i never realized got planted now until just rewatching it this time around um Bucky's parting words to Steve um, when he says, don't do anything stupid while I'm gone. And Steve says, uh, you're taking all the stupid with you. And that's, I never realized that when Steve goes to return the stones, that that is a callback to this moment. And it, it kind of blew my mind that even now before Disney officially 
was producing these films that they managed to tie all of these things back. It's incredible. The The attention to detail in the writing still blows my mind with Marvel. In Germany, Schmidt and Dr. Zola harness the energy of the Tesseract, while Steve attends basic training where he meets MI6 agent Peggy Carter, as well as Colonel Chester Phillips. We learn that they are experimenting with creating a new super soldier and only one will be picked for the experiment. Erskine wants to pick Steve, however, Phillips does not want him until he sees Steve dive on a dummy grenade to help save his men. So, I love the fact that we are now starting to see Zola and Schmidt as their relationship builds, and as they are starting to become more and more successful with the Tesseract, I like to see how unhinged Schmidt is, and I like to see that Zola, played by Toby Jones, is, you can tell that he's not totally comfortable with what's going on, but at the same time, he's still very much on board with the science. Well, it plays directly into one of the biggest themes of this movie, which is bullying. What else is he going to do? Um... But I, I really love this scene because we know now what the Tesseract can do, what its powers are, its role in the Infinity Gauntlet. But it's an entirely different story when it's put in the most evil hands possible. So I love that we're getting it. I love that we're getting it in the context of it could have altered the entire course of history. Um, because we've seen the Avengers try and protect it present day. We've seen Loki get possession of it. Right. But that's where our focus is. You never really stop to consider what if it had fallen in the wrong hands all those years ago? And now you've got a villain who's worse than Hitler controlling this thing. Like, and, and that's where, you know, we sort of hit on this before what this film was allowed to do as far as taking liberty with with the history of it all, um, it's just what makes this movie so unique. It is. I love that the bullying continues even when we get to basic training. I love that as a part of the test for Erskine, at least, Steve knows that he's at a disadvantage physically, so he has to outsmart a lot of these guys. And the flag scene is a perfect example of that. They are on a hike. They are told that if they can retrieve the flag from the top of the pole, that they get to skip the rest of the hike, that they get to ride back in the Jeep. It hasn't been done in 17 years. And, you know, all of the other troops are trying to climb the pole. And it's not until they step away that Steve literally just pulls the pin on the bottom of the flagpole that's right in front of them because no, everybody's overthinking it. They're trying to be macho and show their strength. He's trying to show his will and his intelligence. It is such a subtly good test. Yes. That I remember at the time when we saw the movie for the first time, I went, it's just like, it's such a brilliant thing to do. Right. Because all they said was retrieve it. They never said how. And it takes somebody like Steve to solve a problem like that. Um, And it tells us everything that we need to know about the character, as does diving on that grenade, because nobody else, everybody who's bigger and stronger, nobody else was willing to do it. 
Um, I don't want to gloss over two very big character introductions here. Um, Agent Carter. It's such an incredible intro for her. And this character just keeps getting better and better and better. Haley Atwell, she is incredible in the role. She's endearing. She's funny. She's very intelligent. I wish that we would have seen more of her. I know that they had Agent Carter on ABC and it got canceled, I think, after only two seasons and kind of surprised a lot of people. But I wish that they would have extended on that and given her more of a role on Disney+. Plus. Like, obviously, we've seen her pop up a handful of times. We've seen the what-if scenarios, but I wish that we would have seen more of her on Disney+. Plus. I wish that she would have gotten another film. I wish that they would have continued the television show, at least a miniseries, that we get more of her. She is such a fan favorite. I don't know that that's out of the realm of possibility. I could totally see them doing something like that with her. Um what impresses me too, though, is from this open where, you know, she's getting heckled and, you know, she tells the guy to step forward and then she ends up punching him out. Um, I was afraid that she was going to be a one note character, that they weren't going to develop her and it was just going to be, you know, for the time period, if you weren't a nurse, there were not a lot of roles for women here. And I really thought that they had written this character in just for the sake of this film, not becoming a total sausage fest. And I was very much afraid that she was going to get stuck in a position like Steve earlier on in this movie where it's don't pick on me. And I was afraid that other than being the love interest, that that was going to be it for her and totally not the case at all. They just build on it so much. They give her so much to do. It is a really great role punched up by a brilliant actress. And the same can be said about Phillips, played by Tommy Lee Jones, one of the great actors of our time. Not just great actors, but this is just incredible casting because same thing with every line he delivers, it just keeps getting better and better. Um, this is where I was watching and I was like, I don't rewatch this enough. Like, of course, anytime Avengers is on and you catch it, I'll watch. Guardians, absolutely. This is one that I need to go back specifically and revisit because I forgot how funny he is. He might be Marvel's best casting ever. And I know we've talked about how great each of the Avengers are in their own role, but, like, they, they just struck gold here. I feel like as he's gotten older, he's almost gotten typecast. <laughs> I don't care for this. It's so, it's so good. He's he's excellent. And I love that when Steve finally does get picked after the grenade scene, that he has that conversation with uh with Erskine about maintaining his character and being a good man. But I think that people often forget that Schmidt tells us the story about, or sorry, uh, he Erskine tells us the story of Schmidt. Bingo. And how this is how he became the Red Skull. 
that they had been experimenting on this together and that he's not just a soldier. He is a scientist. Yes. And became Hitler's right hand man because of his love for science and for how he viewed how the Nazis could use science to advance their, you know, world domination. At least that's what they were trying to do and how he became off the rails even for Adolf Hitler and how he didn't have the serum in its completed form and he was just so obsessed that he took it anyway. It does so much in giving us backstory on our supervillain, a villain that does not get enough recognition. Like we see him pop up again later in Infinity War, but I don't think that people realize just how powerful the Red Skull is. Right. No, this is a hugely important scene. And I love that it is more than just a heartwarming moment between Steve and his mentor. But to your point, you're not only getting great backstory about the villain. What I never realized is how many parallels that there are to Steve's journey. And really, as far as the serum goes, they are two sides of the same coin. It's just, you know, it's that which wolf do you feed? Yeah, for sure. Back in Germany, Schmidt has tracked down Erskine and has sent an assassin to kill him. The next day in New York, Steve undergoes the procedure, injecting him with the super serum that subjects Steve's body to cellular change and rapid muscle growth. The experiment, overseen by Erskine and Howard Stark, turns out to be a success. However, amongst the gallery of government officials and reporters is the assassin who detonates a bomb, shoots Erskine dead, and steals a vial of the serum. Steve pursues him, and after the vial is broken, the assassin swallows a cyanide pill and, de and declares, Hell Hydra. I have always loved this experiment scene. Not just the look of it, because they really do capture that era. Yes. With the very rounded edges of the consoles and the pod that they put Steve in with the very little window that you can look in, but naturally that the government would invite members of the press yes. to what is supposed to be a top secret uh, experiment. Of course, naturally. Uh, no, I love everything about this scene from start to finish, from the car ride over through the entire chase through Brooklyn and the cyanide pill. I love that this antique store is hiding in plain sight and this is what's going on underneath it. Um, I love that it's also been right under Steve's nose the entire time because as they're driving to the experiment, um, he's pointing out to Peggy, I got beat up over there. I got beat up over there. So it is a callback to what we were talking about earlier, how this is the norm for him. He's, he's accustomed to being bullied. Um, so I just absolutely love it. You know, the little old lady who's protecting this place. <laughs> She's so unsuspecting. Um, but I, I also, again, like they really did such a great job of writing women into this film because she's like a seasoned veteran that's protecting right. this place. It's amazing. Um, but to your point, yes, I, I love the set here uh, where they do perform the experiment. I love that we get to see Steve and Howard's relationship start to play out. Um, that Howard was trying to protect him because there was a moment where he didn't think he was going to be able to handle it and he was ready to shut the whole thing down. Um, and I think that 
that's something that you completely forget about because we're so used to Tony and Steve butting heads over his father, really, and what Stark Industries has become. You forget that it, in some regard, Steve knows Tony's father better than Tony did. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you often forget that aspect of it. You can also tell that this was before Disney got their hands exclusively on producing these films because there is so much blood. There is so much <laughs> gun violence. Um, which the bomb. There be, with the, with, but there should be. Like, that's that's the movie that... That's the story they're trying to tell you. That's the film that they made. It's gritty. Like, if you think about it, it's it's a it's a war movie. I was just going to say that. Yes, like, that's that's what it is at the root of it. Like, you, you kind of have to lean into that, especially because you went for period piece. But um, to your point, yeah, I mean, for a character with such little screen time, Dr. Erskine's death really hurts. I mean, I think that's because Stanley Tucci is just such a great actor and he's a beloved actor. You don't want to see him taken out so early on in the film um but you really feel this one and and now you get this you feel for steve here too because bucky's gone now his mentor is gone he is completely on his own and now he's got to figure out this new body which he puts to use very quickly because now he's chasing down this cab this is the only thing where for everything that we're asked to suspend our disbelief for i'm kind of like you're running barefoot through brooklyn which is a bad idea in and of itself but he's able to catch the cab. Like I never, when I think of the cap, I don't think of like super speed, you know, like he's not Superman. So this was the one time where I was a little bit taken out of it, but it does redeem itself because he's trying to help a kid. And even the, I love this line from the kid when he's like, I can swim keep going after him where the kids are putting their faith in Captain America, because that's what he became. he, he was this icon and somebody for kids to look up to. So it happens before he's even in a suit. And now you start to see him playing with the shield a little bit when he picks the door up off the cab and he's using that as protection. So I love that we're getting all of these little pieces of the puzzle that are going to get put together in moments. Right. And it's not the first time that you see him use something as a shield. You see him do it with the trash can lid in the alley. So yes. this, like, it starts to develop early on that obviously he's going to have an affinity for a shield. Um, and I love that when he finally does track down the assassin, I love the cyanide pill. Me I too. love the Hail Hydra. Like everything that they do to conclude that scene was spectacular. And I love that that gets called back to later on when Phillips eventually. Uh, captures the scientist and he's like everybody else has taken a cyanide pill why haven't you done that right right uh back in germany the nazis tell schmidt that hitler has lost his patience with the red skull and is prepared to move on schmidt exposes that his map of enemies includes berlin but before hitler can be warned of schmidt's madness all of the nazis are killed using the tesseract zola is shaken by the power that he has helped unleash as well um it's i said it before it's crazy to think that there was someone more sinister than adolf hitler that there was something more sinister 
than the Nazis themselves. But seeing the power of the Tesseract unleashed was absolutely horrifying. Yeah, this is where Schmidt as a villain, and I, I mean Schmidt as himself, before he officially becomes Red Skull, he does not get talked about enough as a villain because I think people remember him more for the Red Skull and, and his role um, with the Soul Stone. And you forget where he came from and how just pure evil he is. I mean, think about how unhinged you have to be to think that you can outdo Hitler. Like, why would you want to? It's already horrible what is happening. But you want to make it, you want to make it worse. That there's a special place in hell for you. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel like this gets completely forgotten about. And it is a very serious, very heavy scene. And it is perfectly countered in the next scene with the humor of Tommy Lee Jones calling Hydra a cult. Yes. But Hysterical. Bef- before we get to that point, I have a question I want to ask. As crazy as this sounds, are we supposed to feel bad for Zola? Because Zola is not a very strong person physically he's obviously very mentally tough and he's very brilliant and we know that he's being taken advantage of and he is a part of the big wheel that is going to be hydra's world domination and really like their terrorism on society but is there a part of you that feels bad for him because he almost immediately regrets the fact that he got involved In this scene, yes. And I think that we are supposed to feel bad for him. And that's, as I mentioned before, because bullying is such a big theme in this movie. I think that that is what it is speaking to more than anything else. Um, But I'm going to put a pin in that because my opinion switches back later on. Fair. With Erskine gone, it appears so too is the hope of building an army of super soldiers. Phillips says that the SSR has been reassigned and that they are going to London to take the fight to Hydra. However, they will not use Steve Rogers as he is not enough on his own. Government officials instead see Steve as the face of the war effort and develop the Captain America character to help sell war bonds. However, Steve wants to fight for his country. Captain America becomes a national phenomena, but this still isn't enough for Steve, who was promised more for his efforts. Um, this entire angle, this entire thing with this USO type show is absolute brilliance. It's one of the best things that Marvel has ever put to screen. You took the words right out of my mouth. Not just for the way everything plays out, but even just for the character, because Steve has just proven himself. He did what everybody thought was impossible by taking this serum. And now you're going to knock down this guy again. So I love that they, I mean, as, as difficult as it is when you're rooting for this character, I love that they did it because now we see that he still can't get ahead. We're still rooting for him to continue to stand up for himself and continue to fight. Um, and then you get this pitch of kid, I'm going to make you a star, which is like so of the era. And what other choice does he have 
other than to go with these two chuckleheads that want to put them on display. Um, the star-studded man with the plan sequence, though, is hands down the greatest montage in Marvel. It's a catchy song. It is an amazing set. It totally paints the picture of that era with the USO show. And it's such an amazing arc for Steve because we've just seen him get knocked down. He's got his lines taped to the back of the shield. He doesn't even know them. And he's got to figure out his new role without the help of Erskine. He's got to come to terms with the fact that this is the only way he's going to be able to serve his country. And somewhere along the line, maybe after his like 150th punch of Hitler, brilliant, by the way, he starts to believe in his own hype. Yeah. And then you've got this great almost smash cut to him now touring overseas and he's totally humbled at base camp. Before we move on to that, though, we would be remiss not to mention the brilliance of Alan Silvestri, who composed this film, and our favorite, Alan Menken, who wrote Star Spangled Man. I didn't know that that was Alan Menken, actually. Sure was. It makes all the sense yeah. in the world, though. Because, I mean, as hokey and campy as it's supposed to be, when you think about the music, I mean, he really did capture that era. And when now that you know, it's kind of like, yeah, oh, well, of course he did. Um, and I think that this is also an important scene for the fans of the comics, because I remember when this trailer came out, everybody was freaking out over the uniform. But this is how you worked in that traditional, like that first iteration of the comic, you were still able to get that in here. And I, I love how they did it. I mean, I love that they worked the actual comic book in. Yes. And that they made it a part of the national phenomenon. It was so meta. It's great. Yeah. So at the camp where he is not so well received by the troops, Agent Carter visits him and tells him that he was meant for more. She tells him that Bucky's platoon was attacked by Schmidt. Phillips tells him that Bucky is presumed dead and there is no plan to rescue any of the remaining troops. So Steve takes matters into his own hands and with the help of Carter and Stark, parachutes into Austria to rescue the stranded troops. He sneaks into the Hydra camp where they are being kept and fights his way through and takes a cell containing power from the Tesseract. He frees the troops who fight off the Hydra soldiers and Schmidt, seeing him in action, sets the camp to self-destruct before removing the Tesseract. Steve rescues Bucky and sees Schmidt, who has revealed himself as the Red Skull, before he and Zola escape. Phillips is furious with Carter for helping Rogers as he is feared dead and thinking that this is going to be horrendous PR. However, Steve returns with all of the captured troops and is anointed an American hero who is now respected and taken seriously. I think that it makes sense that he would take matters into his own hands. I love that he does take matters into his own hands because it's not only a means of rescuing Bucky, which ultimately is all that he wants. Right. It now legitimizes him as being more than a circus clown. Well, I don't know if you caught this too, but when uh, Bucky tells Steve that he's been called up, he tells him that he's in the 107th and yeah. they keep going back to that that was also the same division that steve's parents were in so i think it's it's more than just about bucky 
it's it's a point of pride with him. And of course, this is where, you know, this is where I feel like sometimes there is that chip on his shoulder where it's I have to prove myself. Bucky is at the root of it. You know, his motive is altruistic. It is about saving his friend. But there are a lot more layers here going on. And I, I love the call to action to go save him. Um, I love that, you know, he has that moment with Agent Carter where he says, do you do you really believe what you said to me? Uh, that I'm made for more. And she says every word. Um, she not only agrees to help him, she enlists Stark to help him. Right. So he's got the best pilot flying him in. And even before they go against orders, this is where Tommy Lee Jones just keeps getting better and better because Steve walks into the tent and it's, well, if it isn't the star spangled man with the plant, just so dry. It, it's so perfect. It's a perfect delivery. I want to get your take on something though. We don't have the cap in full uniform yet. He's taken one of the helmets of the girls in the show, um, but he does have his makeshift shield with him. And it is the American flag. It is painted bright on the shield. Um, And it's so prominent. It stands out when he's trying to be undercover. And I'm not sure if it's brazen, plucky, or stupid. So that's what I wanted to get your take on. I think it's a little bit of everything. I I think that, of course, he wants his shield. We've already seen that that's really all that he wants. We've seen him use shields a handful of times, or at least makeshift versions. I think that the movie is so washed out to have the bright colors stylistically, artistically, it makes a lot of sense. Where it's stupid is that it's a damn prop for a stage show realistically how much is it going to help right i would imagine it was cheaply made cheaply painted it's part of a costume it's not really like if you think about it, it's not really a shield it's metal that's probably made of aluminum right that was lightweight to be used on stage as a part of a costume in that respect it's stupid and it probably doesn't do much for him in terms of protection. So that's one of the few moments in the film where I'm just like, I don't really buy this because a bayonet could probably stab through this thing. And it's that for rendered useless at that point. But I think it's not dumb that he would take it. So I, I kind of like it as a whole, though not very functional for its intended purposes that's kind of my my take on it is that i i think this is where like i mentioned before he's starting to believe his own hype so that's where he takes it but at the same time i'm like this is such a steve thing to do like of course you're not gonna like rub mud on the shield to cover the colors so that you're protected and you're not seen so easily but he's gonna be like no america and just just go for it. Well, it would also be a very disrespectful thing to do to the American flag, which I know for some people out there, it's kind of hard to believe that you could actually disrespect the American flag. But, I mean, you can't even take an American flag and throw it in the garbage when it's, when it's you know, sun-faded. Like, there is a way that you are supposed yeah. to take it and have it properly disposed of. So, oh, no, I know that, but that's, that's with an actual flag. This is just painted on, so... I mean, I think you can sort of camouflage it in that way, but I'm saying that's the character. He's not going to do that. He respects it. He's not going to do that. Yeah. 
Um, this Red Skull reveal. Oh, it's so is good. wild. It is so good, and all the kudos in the world for using practical effects with Red Skull. I was so impressed and excited and happy to see that that's what they used, that it was prosthetics, and that they have the sensors, the contacts on there, and they cleaned it up in post. But if they made that movie today, it wouldn't be practical, and it would look stupid. It would just be sensors on a face. Now I'm going to have to go back and watch because I bet you they didn't go practical in Infinity War and Endgame. Probably not. I doubt that they did. I mean, like, we have our answer. They did not make this movie today, but, I mean, being that the character does come back, I bet you they didn't do it as good. My favorite thing about this is during the reveal, he talks to Steve Red Skull about courage and fighting and being a part of the fight. And as he's escaping a base that he has set for self-destruction and Steve calls him on it and says, why are you running? And he doesn't even justify it with an answer. He just smiles and gets on the elevator and leaves. That, again, goes back to the bullying theme because Carter calls him out. Yeah. At one point, she when they're in the car and he's pointing out all the places he got beat up, she's like, why didn't you just run away? Yep. He doesn't. It's not in his nature. But speaking of, then we get we cut out of Steve's jump when him and Bucky are separated on opposite sides and everything ex- everything is exploding underneath them. Yeah. I hate that they cut out of this. And that you don't actually see the escape. Yeah. I mean, as far-fetched as it is, I just want to see him land it. Like he's Captain America. We've we've built to the hype this whole time and now we're not going to see him make this jump. And we're halfway through the movie. We know he's not going to die. Right. So what are you hiding? What's what's the suspense? Right. I, I'm willing to turn my head the other way, though, because this reveal of the cat marching back with everyone that he just rescued into camp and everyone celebrating him um, and the way that he immediately goes to Phillips yes. to surrender himself for disciplinary action. And Phillips is like, it's unnecessary. Now you know that he's even won over his most hardened hater and He's got everyone on his side now. For now. It's a great I mean, moment. I think later on, doesn't Phillips call him a, a chorus girl or something like that? Like, he wins him over, though, temporarily. I feel like the chorus girl, though, I, I feel like now it's more affectionate because he has proven himself. And he's not going to, um, he's not going to soften that much. He's still, you know, he's still a colonel. He's got a, you know, he, he can't pick favorites. True. As they track down Hydra, Steve and Phillips put a team together to pursue Red Skull and put an end to Hydra. Meanwhile, Stark experiments with the Texeract power that Steve has retrieved. He also shows Steve prototypes of the tech that he needs to fight Hydra, but Steve, of course, chooses the shield made out of vibranium. A lot happens here low-key. Specifically... The conversation with Peggy about finding the right dance partner. As you pointed out earlier, this becomes such a theme. It's their entire relationship that you see eventually get played out in Endgame. I mean, the, the, the last whole, shot, It's that, that's the end credits. It's incredible that they planted it this early. It's incredible that they paid off on it. And it's incredible that 
12 years ago at the time of this recording, sitting in a movie theater watching this movie, you just think that this is like a euphemism for, oh, they're going to date. Having no idea at all for how this is going to pay off and change the cinematic landscape that was the superhero genre. And I say was because the change started here. Yes. Even stripping away what it means to Marvel in the bigger picture, just looking at it in the context of this film and Steve's character arc, they planted it at the expo. He's afraid he he can hardly speak to girls, let alone dance with them. And it's something that he beats himself up for is I've never danced with a girl before. He shares that with Peggy. He's not afraid to open up to her on that level. And, you know, then then he kind of empowers that with the idea of I'm waiting for the right partner. It's it's not that I'm this shy, weak kid. It's also that I don't want to waste my time. And then here she is at the bar, which is a brilliant set, by the way. Um, And she basically spells it out for him like when this is over. We're going to have our dance. And to your point, yes, that is the euphemism for dating and and more. But um, I love that she's holding nothing back and she tells him, um, I I will be this person for you. Uh, The other great thing that's happening here is that Bucky has always been the ladies man and he's always done the talking and he is here in the scene with them, but he is completely ignored. Um, and prior to this little beat with Steve and Peggy, um, Steve puts his team together uh, with a bunch of the guys that he just rescued, um, who are wonderful supporting cast. Uh, I, I love how they develop, even though they're smaller parts. I love how all these characters get developed. Um, but he says to Bucky, he's like, are, are you ready to follow Captain America into battle? And Bucky says, no, I'm ready to follow that kid from Brooklyn that's always been up for the fight, always been down for the cause. Um, I just love this scene so much. Um, And then to your point, speaking of things being planted, the vibranium right over my head first time we saw this, probably on my first several viewings and now to know what vibranium means and, and how far they've brought it. It's incredible. I'm just glad that the scene paid off in the end when this montage was over because they used the montage in the first trailer. And I remember we were still working at BAB and BLI and I was in the traffic studio when this trailer came out. And I remember being aggravated because I was, I I saw the trailer and I said, since when the hell does Captain America use a pistol and having no idea that he was only using it because they were, following military orders and that they were seeing through a military grade exercise. I thought that it was the wrong place for it in the trailer because it just looks like Captain America uses a gun now. And that made no sense to me. So I'm glad that it paid off when the actual movie came out. The other thing that I felt was sort of unnecessary is um, this kiss between Steve and the admin after Peggy has just made her intentions clear now she's trying to do a service to her country by making out with Captain America and I was kind of like really we don't need this we don't need 
Peggy getting pissed off. And this is what I was talking about where I, I was kind of like afraid that her character was going to be very one note because now you have her in the role of pissed off girlfriend. But the payoff comes from her testing out the shield yeah. and shooting him. And you've also got this great little moment um, with Stark where <laughs> Stark is now terrified of Agent Carter and uh, Steve says, I've got some ideas on the suit. So it's a great little moment between them. And again, we get to see how much of a role Howard played in in just helping the cap out. As time goes on, Steve and his team are more and more successful defeating Hydra. We also see that despite his abundance of dance partners, to say the least, he only wants Peggy. They track down a train carrying Dr. Zola and board it to capture him. Bucky, after battling a Hydra soldier, falls from the train and is presumed dead. Zola is captured and interrogated by Phillips. Zola tells Phillips that Schmidt dreams of eventual uh, eventual world domination. Um, everything that plays up to this moment with Bucky is incredibly well done. I love that we see the success that is this ragtag team. I love the fact that you see Bucky and Steve fighting side by side, which is, of course, what we knew was going to happen, but it was the exact thing that they swore could never happen at the start of this film. Um, and I think his presumed death is very rough. It's rough on the audience because not only do we like Bucky, but we feel for Steve because we know that this is going to be a loss that he is not soon to get over. Right. At first I thought the train felt very big for this film, but Bucky's presumed death needed to hit. Um, I think the other thing is you do need to give Steve that sort of hardened quality that many of the other Avengers have. You need to give him his why he's eventually going to team up with them because we've seen the why play out now. It's why he wants to go overseas and fight, but we need to build on that reason of how do we get him to understand what's happening 70 years later now that he's come out of the ice and give him a motivation to want to join forces because otherwise he could throw up his hands and, and just go about his business living in present day. Right. And that's obviously not at all what happens here. Right. But that's what I'm saying. It's rooted in this moment is you needed to give him more of a chip on his shoulder other than I've got something to prove. Correct. And I love the scene between Zola and Phillips. Oh my God. I mean, what else is there to say? The interrogation scene is fantastic. It's Tommy Lee Jones at his best. Everything about it is just absolutely knocked out of the park. Other than Star Spangled Man, this is probably my favorite scene in the movie simply because of Tommy Lee Jones's performance. And this is what I'm talking about. Like, it just builds and gets better and better and better. He doesn't even really have a lot of lines, but it's things like when... Zoloff is telling him about Schmidt's bigger plan and why he believes in his hype this way and what he wants to do with the Tesseract. 
Tommy Lee Jones has a mouthful of steak, which actors usually don't do. They don't actually eat, but he is actually chewing. And he goes, mm. it, it just that little noise. It brings me to my knees every single time. It's just hysterical. Um, this is where I flip back the other way and I no longer feel bad because I feel like Zoloff is a little cocky in this scene where he's afraid and cowering the last time we've seen him. And it's like, what have I done? I totally put this power in the wrong hands. Then I feel bad for him. But now that he's playing it like he still has the upper hand, I'm kind of like, hmm. No, I don't feel bad for you. Looking to avenge Bucky and stop Schmidt, Steve storms the Hydra base where Schmidt is hiding. He is overcome by the amount of troops at the camp and is captured. However, backup quickly arrives and fights back against Hydra. As Schmidt flees on his aircraft, Steve boards it to stop the Red Skull from unleashing an attack on the eastern seaboard of the United States. Steve pre uh, prevents bombers from their attack and battles with Schmidt, who, upon touching a damaged Tesseract, gets pulled from the plane and is sent into a different part of the galaxy while the Tesseract is dropped into the ocean. Steve, on the radio, then tells Peggy that he needs to crash the plane as it is headed for New York and lots of people will be killed if he doesn't. He tells Peggy that he needs a rain check on their dance... And he promises that he will make up the date after he crashes the plane successfully. This entire scene, the final battle, sets up more than we could have ever imagined. Yes. When it comes to the MCU. First off, I think that it's a little long. This scene probably could have been a little shorter. Um... Because when they start the final battle, there's like 27 minutes left in the movie, and I can't figure out where the 27 minutes is going. Um, but while a little long in the tooth, the fact that, to me, like the battle is, is fine, it's whatever. It's the moment that Schmidt touches the Tesseract and gets sucked into the galaxy, into a different part of the galaxy. This is where you set up so much of the MCU that it took them a decade. I mean, we're still... Yeah. I mean, Gal Guardians Part 3 just came out this year. Twelve years later, they are still paying off on what was set up in one of the final scenes of this movie, and it's absolutely incredible that they, that they planted it here. And what impresses me most is... Yes, even though they are setting up so much for the future of Marvel, they didn't do it at the expense of tying up the loose ends with the characters in this film. Yeah. Because I agree where it is a little long, you still get some really great beats with Colonel Phillips where, um, you know, this is the point I was making before is that he's totally on the cap side now. He's going to help him. So when the cap is in there alone... And he's got his back against the wall. Who comes in? You actually get to see Tommy Lee Jones fire off the shot and yeah. help him out. Um, he's the one who's driving the car on the runway, uh, which ultimately is driving the cap to his death. So maybe it's not the most shining moment for the colonel. But still, he 
he supports their relationship because he knows at this point it's such a great little moment where they capture Peggy's picture in uh, in the compass. Yeah. Um, he's not getting in their way. Uh, you give him one last moment of comedy where Agent Carter kisses Steve before he, you know, goes after the uh, the bad guy. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones gets the line, I'm not going to kiss you, which I forget about. And I this is where, again, I don't rewatch this enough. There's just such great closure with all of these characters, even the the rest of the team that the cap has been fighting with. They get their moment um, to toast the cap after he crashes the plane. Um, so I love that they managed to tie everything up without leaving so many things open ended for the sake of sequels. Yeah, and the scene with Peggy is fantastic. I it's mean, heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. She carries it. She does such a great job with it. And again, we're paying it off in the final scene of Endgame. Like, they left no stone unturned. And I think a lot of people often forget how much got planted in this. I love, too, that you get to see their heartbreaking final words, but you don't see her completely fall apart. It's just that big empty room and she's just by herself, which makes it even more sad. And something that I've forgotten about is that they find the Tesseract. Howard keeps looking. He doesn't even care about the Tesseract. Stark is looking for the cap. It's such a great moment. And I, I, forget all about it honestly right and this is happening as the world is celebrating the fall of the nazis we see that stark retrieves the tesseract and that they keep looking for uh for steve rogers steve wakes up in a quote-unquote hospital room in new york but when he realizes that the dodger game on the radio is the game that he had attended previously he breaks free to see that he isn't even in a hospital when he gets out of the building that he is being held in he sees a very unfamiliar New York City and a very unfamiliar Times Square. And Nick Fury arrives to tell Steve that he has been asleep for 70 years. And even more heartbreaking and disappointing than the fact that he has been asleep for 70 years and has woken up in a place that he is completely unfamiliar with, Steve is upset that he has missed his date with Peggy. How do you feel? I love the radio. I love that yes. of all the games they could have picked they happen to pick one from Ebbets Field that he actually attended. I love that that's the tell because everything else, down to the nurse being dressed in the 40s and having her hair and makeup of the time, they left no detail unattended. And I don't mean they as in the film because they've just done that. They just recreated the 40s. I'm talking right. about what shield has done to keep this illusion for the cap. So I love that that was the tell. The only thing that I bump on, and this might surprise you is that he runs out into the middle of times square. I feel like that's supposed to be shock value more for the audience than it is for the cap. What I wish that they had done was put him back in his old neighborhood and he runs out into the streets of Brooklyn that are supposed to be familiar. And, and that's the, where am I moment? I disagree because not enough people are familiar with Brooklyn. Where they're going to know. And because so much of Brooklyn is still sort of in that time capsule. 
that no one's going to know where he is or care. But that's what I'm saying. It's more for the audience than it is for the character. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think, yes, it is very much for the audience, but imagine being asleep for 70 years and waking up in the future where every billboard is digital. You know, it's nothing but moving signage and bright lights and traffic and pollution. It's very different than it had been. The hustle and bustle, there's so many more people there. And it's such an iconic place that I think it is as startling for Steve as it is for the audience. But I mean, the I... minute he breaks free from that wall, we know that we know where he is. We oh. know that he's in present day. Oh, for sure. Even the you know, they even have the backdrop of the window looking like like it's the 40s. But I'm saying I feel like you still could have achieved that same thing if he was in Brooklyn. So maybe not his old neighborhood specifically, but if you have him run out, see the Brooklyn Bridge, maybe run onto the bridge, you're going to see all of these modern cars whizzing by you. You're going to see the the wardrobe change. You're going to see the New York City skyline completely changed. He's going to know. So I feel like just keeping to the root of the character, like... I wish it had taken place and Fury surrounded him in Brooklyn itself where you see the changed skyline as opposed to just put him, you know, in the epicenter of the, of the world. And I love the final line. I love that the final line of the movie is just, I had a date. And that's all he cares about. I wish it was I had a dance, though. I mean, for everything else, they managed to tie it all up. So now I'm being like overly critical of it. But if it was I had a dance and then to think now how Endgame ends with him and Peggy, that would have just been perfect, but perhaps too perfect. Final thoughts on Captain America, the first Avenger. I will let you go first. Final thoughts. I said this earlier. I don't go back and watch this one nearly enough. And I think part of the reason is because Iron Man, even though this is Captain America, the first Avenger, and it is the first film in timeline order, Iron Man came out first in 2007. And I fell in love with Iron Man so much that as the Cap story grows and it collides with Tony Stark... The Cap is almost in some ways an antagonist to him. And I'm only focusing on the later version of the Cap. And that's why he was never one of my standout favorite Avengers. Was just really because of my love for Iron Man. So I've really forgotten about his humble beginnings. Which is a shame because this movie is just so incredible and I'm certainly going to go back and rewatch it a lot more often because this feels kind of odd to say because it wasn't officially under Disney until it was distributed they didn't technically produce this one but I think this is a perfect film um Joe Johnson just knocked it out of the park. This was a capstone film for him. You can see why he got this film because of his earlier work on The Rocketeer and October Sky. And I mean, he's got so many other diverse movies under his belt, like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Jumanji and The Page Master. Like he was at the top of his game in the 90s. 
But to me, this is his best film because he was able to seamlessly blend a war story with sci-fi and make it believable. And I know this movie gets panned a lot for being campy, but I think that it was campy where it needs to be and incredibly heartfelt where it needs to be. And I just love it. It's campy because it's supposed to be. But because of the social age that we live in now, American pride is not something that is be- it's not as beloved as it used to be, which is a damn shame. Um, this film is perfect. This film knocks it out of the park. This film, I actually, I live on the other side of the fence. I think it takes what is a campy character. I will even agree with certain people to the point that I think at times Captain America can be a propaganda character, but they make him so endearing. They make him more than just a propaganda character. Um, but, you know, we used to be called patriotic. Now you're called a nationalist in 2023. So I think that there's a level of the audience watching this for the first time that may not um, understand or appreciate it. But I think that if you look at what the root of this character was, I think if you look at what the root of this character is, and I think that, like, the the Cap has such an arc by the time you get to Endgame, but really, he's got quite a full arc by the end of this movie. Yes. Because it's not just about fighting for America. It's fighting for the little guy. It's fighting for justice. It's fighting for his friends. It's it's everything that you want in a superhero. There's very few superheroes. I love Iron Man, but... If you want to find, of all of the Avengers, if you want the perfect role model, it is Captain America. So I think that the movie's perfect. As a period piece, it works. I think that the cast knocks it out of the park. It is by far in the top three. I think it's interchangeable in regards to the top Marvel films of all time between this, Guardians 2, and Endgame. I think you can sort of interchange them. I don't think there's a wrong answer. Um, And I absolutely love this film, and I think that it holds up. I am interested in knowing, and we are interested in knowing, what you have to say about Captain America, the first Avenger. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. Hey, guys, my name is Mike. I listen to Jackie and Sean's podcast every week on my commute into work. So I reached out to Jackie, and she helped me put together the perfect getaway. I did a four-night Disney cruise ship, and she was able to answer every question that I threw at her. She put together the perfect dates and an insurance plan that made the whole experience stress-free. She was able to help me with little tips and tricks, like you can get a Mickey Mouse bar delivered to you any time of the day. And I think that was a mistake because now I put about 10, 15 pounds on. I'll definitely be using Jackie again in the future. Thanks for everything. So if you are interested in completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official Monorail news sponsor. And I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney-inspired art at Karma and Kismet. 
infinitedesigns.com. Don't forget, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout to see all of Kelly's work. It's online at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. Let's talk some movie news this week, starting with the announcement that there are going to be Disney films that are going to see theatrical re-releases as a part of Disney 100. So this was some surprisingly polarizing news. Um, I have a lot of thoughts because this is not the first time that Disney or any studio has done something like this, where it's an anniversary of a big film, so they'll put it back on the big screen. They've done it with Wizard of Oz. I don't recommend it because... The Wizard of Oz was shot at a time where we didn't have this technology. So when you blow it up on the big screen, it doesn't look as great as it does in not even standard def, the way that it was shot on film and projected back in the day. Um, So there are certain films you shouldn't do that with. But it doesn't matter because the studios do anyway. Disney has even done this with Marvel before. And if there's a big release coming out, they'll put the first two films in a trilogy in theaters leading into the third one. So nothing new here. But people are acting like it is. And I'm really surprised at the level of backlash because what a lot of people are unhappy about is that the the films that they've chosen are films that have come out only within the past 20 to 25 years. They're not putting any Walt era films back on the big screen. They're doing Pirates of the Caribbean, Hey, for me, totally cool. I would totally go see it again. I didn't, you know, we weren't together when that came out. I didn't even know you. I would love to go see that with you. Uh, You know, they've got a bunch of Pixar on there. Um, You know, I think they picked some well-rounded films. They just didn't pick older films. And that's where the outcry is coming from, that this is just a marketing gimmick. And guess what? It kind of is because Disney is a business and they're trying to make money. Where people are really getting upset, though, is that in the world of sequels and remakes, instead of putting out original content, that's where most of the backlash is coming from, that you're relying on your old catalog that we loved instead of giving us new ideas. And I appreciate the sentiment. However, we did just get a new story we got two recently, actually, Strange World and Elemental, and you didn't go see them. So w- which way do we want it, folks? Well, the same people that are crying that Walt-era films didn't make the big screen on re-release are the same ones that applauded Disney for putting warning labels up on those exact films on Disney+. Plus. See, it's funny the world that we live in, isn't it? Um, here's the thing. I think a lot of this is generational because you and I are old. And we remember a time where you got to see certain films for the first time in movie theaters because they were not released on VHS. Right. I didn't see The Jungle Book on a VHS tape. I saw it in the movie theaters on a re-release because remember, every seven or eight years, these films would come out of the vault, have a theatrical run, and then go back in the vault. This is nothing new for us. I do believe that there is a generation of people, children, that are used to the idea that you could just go and stream anything you wanted. And they're on the heels of a generation that could go and go to Blockbuster and just get anything that you wanted. This is the first time 
that they've been faced with the idea of Disney putting something back in the movie theaters for us it's no it's no great shakes um do i think that moana should be re-released before peter pan no but warning labels that's the world that we live in um there are people that love moana is it a cornerstone for disney it is whether you and i like the film or not is irrelevant but i don't think that you need moana butt up against frozen I think that you need Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, but you can't say dwarves anymore. You need, right, Peter Pan, but you can't do anything in Peter Pan anymore. The Jungle Book, but for some reason we can't do anything in the Jungle Book anymore. Like, there, there's just not enough out there that you could re-release without backlash, thanks to the cesspool that is social media. So, Disney is sort of handcuffed, and the people that applaud Disney for their efforts when it comes to telling you that things are bad are the same ones that are now crucifying Disney for not putting those films on screen. So you can't have it both ways. This is this is the way that the world is working now where we just circle the drain over and over again. I, I like It's sort of entertaining to me, if I'm being honest with you, that we've come back around again. What I will say, though, is kudos to everyone for sleeping with one eye open on this and being aware of what we are willing to pay for because that's the bigger picture is that people are not just taking this for what it is they are being media literate and recognizing that in some ways Disney is trying to pull one over as far as you know what is happening with streaming and what is happening with new content and you know this kind of is a knee-jerk reaction to the writer's strike because they they need to fill the box office. They need box office numbers until they can start producing new content again. So I will say that much, though, that I am at least happy people are not just like racing to the theaters and they are being a little bit choosy with how they're going to spend their dollars. If they did it under the banner of D23, would you feel the same way? Are you asking me personally? or, or I'm asking you personally. If they did Fathom Events D23 does a re-release. I I have the I have the feeling that you wouldn't feel the same way. No, then I would feel like it was more of a gimmick because if it was a Fathom event, they're going to drive up the prices even more. I think this is just a re-release where you can go see it at at cost. We paid $20 to go see the room in a Fathom event. <laughs> now you're offended. Let's talk about something that was not polarizing. I'm not offended. Let's talk about something that was not polarizing. One of the more brilliant moves that Disney has done, um, if this film ever gets made at this point, which was casting Evan Peters in the third Tron movie. First off, I am glad that Disney has not given up on Tron because I think that Tron is a great series that is completely underappreciated. And I think that you have gone out and gotten Jared Leto's attached to it. But I think low-key one of the great actors of our time in Evan Peters. I don't think he gets his flowers as much as he should. Both of them are. I mean, you've got two of the best method actors that are going to go up against each other in this film. I am so excited. I know we have been very critical about sequels and remakes, but Tron is one it, it's the outlier because they let it breathe. They take their time with it. So yes. honestly, I don't I'm not pounding the table for it because yes the writer strike is probably going to impact it but 
I don't mind if they let it breathe again because they gave us a great sequel with Tron Legacy because they waited so long. So if they wait a little longer and take their time with it, I am more than okay with this. But I was so pleasantly surprised by this casting. I'm really surprised that more Disney news sources haven't picked it up because I saw this in Variety and I feel like it was kind of a really quiet announcement and... People should be way more excited about it. We want to know what you have to say about any of the Disney news this week. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. Be sure to follow us on that social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. And for links to everything related to the show, it is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a great 4th of July and a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.